Hi there and welcome. This is Amanda, the founder of Astrology Hub, and you're listening to our week ahead snapshot with world-class astrologer, historian, and author of the Cosmic Calendar, Christopher Renstrom. This show is designed to give you a quick overview of the week ahead, enabling you the gift of choice in how you navigate and weave these energies into your daily life. Enjoy. Hello, my name is Christopher Runstrom, and I'm your weekly horoscope columnist here on Astrology Hub. And this week, I wanted to talk to you about Mercury, the planet of thought and communication, entering the zodiac sign of Virgo on August 11th. Now, this is a pretty important transition that might not strike most people as being like that because most people have a tendency to sort of give Mercury short shrift. It's a very fast moving planet, changes signs on a pretty regular basis, and it's entering the zodiac sign of Virgo, which is kind of like, hmm. I mean, when people often think of Mercury and Virgo, they often think of someone who might communicate in a way that's critical, overly analytical, nagging, parochial, and obsessed with technicalities and details. But boy, do they have that wrong. First of all, Mercury in Virgo is an extraordinary placement. And it has a placement in that sign that no other planet repeats in the entire zodiac. Not only is Mercury in domicile, meaning at home when it's in the zodiac sign of Virgo, but it's also exalted. That means celebrated in this sign. Now, technically, why is Mercury exalted in the zodiac sign of Virgo? Well, it's really quite simple. Mercury rules the two signs that bookend the luminaries in the uh, planetary, in the astrological lineup. So in other words, the moon rules Cancer, the sun rules Leo, and Mercury appears in the two signs that that flank these signs. Mercury rules Gemini on the uh, Cancerian side, and Mercury rules Virgo on the Leo side. And so this is where Mercury becomes exalted because it's closest to the sun here. And so it speaks the mind of the sun and is uh, and is educated in its ways, which then lends itself to the idea of being uh, a planet of education, training, and teaching, but we'll get to that in another talk. What I really want to uh, focus on here is Mercury in Virgo and how so much of its placement there is misunderstood. First of all, we need to talk about the zodiac sign of Virgo. Virgo is the only zodiac sign that is portrayed as a woman. Um, this is coming out of 2,500 years of astrology, which spent most of its time in a civilization that was more patriarchal than it was matriarchal. So it, it doesn't come as any great surprise that there would be one zodiac sign uh, attributed to a woman, which is quite remarkable in that even one sign was attributed to a woman. Now, it could be debated that, well, you know, we don't really know the gender of the crab or the scorpion or the fish, but pretty much it's two guys for the twins, half a guy and a horse for the centaur, some dude, you know, hauling around um, a jug of water for Aquarius and a lion with a mane, definitely establishing his sex and gender uh, for the zodiac sign of Leo. So Virgo is basically a woman. 
Uh, but what's really fascinating about this is that it's a particular type of woman. It is not a woman who is married, but a woman who is unmarried. And this is very, very important uh, to understanding the zodiac sign of Virgo. I regard Virgo as being the feminist sign of the zodiac. And indeed, Virgo rules over all collectives or groups of women throughout 2,500 years that astrology has been around. So at times that could be a convent, at times that could be a brothel, at times that could be a finishing school, at times that could be a harem. Okay, so these were societies that were populated by women in which basically men were not allowed. And there's a whole sort of uh, history or story to that. But I just want to sort of keep put this idea in your head to think of a woman who is not connected to a man. All right. Um, so this could be virgins, which is uh, the popular understanding of, of Virgo. But it also stood for women who were abandoned, uh, women of divorce, and women who were widowed, as well as women who never married. Okay, so this is basically the types of women or the, or the classes or the groupings of women that Virgo rules over. Once a woman uh, becomes married from the understanding of 2,500 years of astrology, she became the property of the man. And so that's, that's its own thing. So Virgo is a standalone woman. Okay. And Virgo addresses the problems that standalone women face in a world that was dominated by men. And so if you lived in a world that was dominated by men, let's go back to Greece, let's go back to Persia, um, you couldn't outmuscle or outfight the guy, uh, but what you could do was outwit and outmaneuver. And this is where we bring in the ruling planet of Mercury. Mercury we know as being the planet of the mind and it's the planet of, the, of communication. And we often think of Mercury as sort of like gabbing or it's the herald or it's the messenger or the modern day version, which is Mercury as a tweet or a text message. But Mercury also talked about guile, cleverness, shrewdness and craft. And no other sign sort of embraces these attributes of Mercury than Virgo, because of course Virgo is the zodiac sign that Mercury is exalted in. I wanted to share with you two examples of women that I think exemplify really the uh, talents and the abilities and the message of Mercury in Virgo. Uh, the first one is Penelope from uh, the Odyssey, which is named after her husband, Odysseus. And her husband, Odysseus, is one of the heroes who goes off and fights in the Trojan War. And he's known as being the cleverest and the smartest of the group, a favorite of Pallas Athena. And so all these guys go off to war uh, to fight in Troy, and it takes them like 10 years to fight this war. And, and basically they win, but it's very bloody and their forces are really depleted. And they return to Greece, beleaguered and pretty much traumatized by their experience. And many of them go on to traumatize other people uh, because of their war experience in Troy. They basically, the other soldiers get back to Greece in about maybe three months at most time. Troy wasn't really that far away from, from Greece. But Odysseus, for some reason, who's also known as the Wanderer, takes 
10 years to get back to Greece, okay? His ship is constantly being blown off course or he's abducted by cyclopses or uh, seduced by sirens or, or, or there's a little tryst with Circe at some point, you know, so the guy takes a long time getting on back to his wife, Penelope, and his son, Telemachus. But what's really intriguing to me and what I wanted to share with you about the Mercury and Virgo is the story of his wife, Penelope. And in typical um, Virgo fashion, uh, it's, it's, it's a framing device. It's a framing story. It's not really the central part of, of the action. And the things that I want you to keep in mind as you, as you hear this little thing that I'm going to share with you are the ideas of Virgo. First of all, it's the sign of women. Um, it's the sign of service. It's the sign of uh, the body. And it's the sign of guile. Okay. It's Mercury ruled just like Gemini. So it uses guile, it uses its cleverness, it uses its wits in a situation. And also, please bear in mind the motif of a woman abandoned, a woman left on her own. So Penelope is basically left on her own, um, overseeing the kingdom of Odysseus. And um, she's got a son named Telemachus, who's still kind of at the um, end of the Trojan War, still sort of a boy. He's like maybe eight or nine-ish. And there's this story that Mary uh, Bird shares with us in her book, uh, Women in Power, um, a manifesto, which I strongly recommend. It's really, really wonderful. But there's a story that she um, shares right off the bat uh, to make a point, which is uh, Penelope comes out one P Penelope comes out one day to to her palace, which has been besieged by suitors. Okay, it's been overrun by suitors. It's all these men who have their eye on Penelope, uh, um, who are convinced that Odysseus is not coming back, and they want to take Penelope as their wife. And so they're kind of like they've moved into her palace, and they're living off her food, they're drinking her wine, eating her food, and just being, you know men. So anyway, so so she comes on out and she sees these men who are occupying her, her palace and she knows that she's in a vulnerable spot. Her husband is not home. He may be lost at sea. She's not sure if he's going to come home. Okay. But she's also in a vulnerable spot because she's raising a boy, Telemachus, who is the heir to her husband and who, when he comes of age, is clearly going to be uh, killed by these men when when one of them steps forward to declare Penelope as his wife. Of course, they have to get rid of the heir to the line of, of Odysseus. But at this point, uh, Telemachus, the boy, is maybe about eight. And she, she comes on out and there's a bard who's performing. You know, these bards, they wandered around everywhere. And so there's this bard performing and he's singing this song about really the difficulties of the Greek heroes in, in Greece and how much trouble that they're having getting home. Penelope is not thrilled with hearing this, and she suggests to the bard, maybe you want to change the channel. Can you sing a different song? Can you tell us of something else? And at this point, Telemachus pipes up, mother, he says, he's like maybe about eight or nine or something like that. He pipes up and he says, mother, go back upstairs to your quarters and take up your own work, the loom and the distaff. Speech will be the business of men, all men, and me most of all for mine is the power in this household, you know? So Penelope throws him a look like, hey, you little shit, you know, but she then turns around and she goes upstairs anyway. But Mary Bird takes this moment to really talk about, it's, it's, she uses it as an example of the earliest silencing of women, 
by a man, okay? And, and it takes place in, in, in this scene. Uh, what I find intriguing about this scene is that Penelope goes upstairs to take up her loom and there by being removed away from the public sphere, she begins to scheme. How is she going to save the life of her little kid? You know, hey, he's young, he's eight, he's nine. But how is she going to uh, save or protect the life of her kid and also buy time until Odysseus, whom she is hoping and praying is going to come home, gets home? And she does this by, okay, she does it through, think of Virgo, work and service. She does it through service. She does it through, you know, she tells her maids or whatever, um, serve the men, serve the men all the food and the wine that they care to eat and drink. Let them have everything that they want. So by serving them, they kind of grow fat and lazy and complacent and they're not in a hurry to really like fight over her and because they're kind of like boozed up, you know, and, and so that's the first thing that she, but not all the men are so, you know, lazy. Some of them are kind of like, oh, Penelope, you'd make a perfect wife or whatever. So they come up to her quarters. They come up to her private quarters where she's working at her loom, um, where she's working at her craft. And again, that's another Virgoan motif, working with the hands and crafting something. She's working on her craft at this loom. And they come up and they're like, hey, you know, Penelope, uh, how do you know your husband's going to come home? And, and what do you think of me? And I've got these muscles and, you know, I'm a studly guy or whatever. And she's just like, Ugh. you know, and, and she's just like, oh, let me make you guys a deal. They're like, a deal? Wow, okay, we're into that. And she's like, let me make you a deal. I'm working on this tapestry right now, right? You know, isn't it nice looking? Is it ornate? Admire the detail, you know? And they're like, oh, wow, the detail is really extraordinary in that tapestry you're doing, Penelope. And she's like, mm, I work really hard at it. But anyway, so, so um, I am going to finish this tapestry, right? And when I finish this tapestry, I will announce the man that I choose to be my suitor. And they're like, whoa, okay, okay. We can wait, you know, for you to finish this tapestry and announce which one of us that you want to be your suitor. She's like, mm, deal. And so uh, what she does is that she goes to work on her tapestry and they sort of hang out and chat with her and things like this. And um, it gets late and they go downstairs to go to bed or whatever. And what she does is that she unweaves everything that she did at night. Okay, so, so what she wove together during the day, she unweaves at night, okay? But leaves it maybe a little bit further, you know? And so when the guys show up the following day, she's still working on her tapestry. Well, this is how Penelope basically postpones things for the 10 years that it takes her husband Odysseus to get back. And of course, when Odysseus gets back, uh, he slays the men with his arrows. He saves Telemachus, his son, who's come of age and is in danger of being slaughtered by these guys, reasserts his kingdom, is the true husband you know, to Penelope, and they take up their kingdom again and live happily ever after. But the reason I tell that story is that, as I said, it's a framing device. The story begins with Penelope making this deal and then it ends with uh, Odysseus coming back and Penelope saying, huzzah, you've saved me and, and things like that. But what's fascinating to me about this story uh, with, with the themes of Mercury and Virgo is the cleverness, the idea of setting up a game. Okay, because Mercury is the planet of gaming. It's the planet of play, um, not play like 
you know, gambling and tournaments, things that are more connected to Leo, but game as in using your wits and outsmarting. Okay, so here she comes up with a scheme. That would actually be the word that we would use. She comes up with a scheme. She never shows her hand. And, you know, instead of like turning around and saying, I have a voice or I'm in charge of this household or whatever, which would have put her at risk, she uses the subservient position to turn the tables on the men who could actually take her as their own and kill her kid. And she buys the time for her husband to get home. So this is something that I want you to think of when you think of Mercury and Virgo. It's this idea of outsmarting. It's this idea of outmaneuvering, especially in a situation where you are um, where you are powerless, you are helpless, you don't have any sort of say in this situation. And of course, this is performed by Penelope, who I think is a wonderful example of Mercury and Virgo. The other uh, figure that I wanted to share with you is Scheherazade. Scheherazade is the teller of tales. She's the woman who tells the story of the thousand and one Arabian Nights. We know her through Aladdin, we know her through Ali Baba and the Forty Thieves, and you know, all these stories. And so she's a sort of fantasist figure. And once again, the story of Scheherazade is the framing device of the thousand and one uh, nights. Just like the story of Penelope is the framing device of the Odyssey, okay? Um, so it begins with Scheherazade and it begins with a predicament that she's put in. The story goes that the monarch Sharar, um, on discovering that his first wife betrayed him, has her put to death immediately, okay? He's, he was in love with her, she betrayed him, and he has her put to death. And this kind of sets the tone of the world that that women are living in. Okay, this guy's betrayed by a woman and he can go ahead and put his wife to death and he does without even second thought. But it doesn't stop there. He then resolves to marry a new virgin every day and he does and he strips her at night and in the morning he has the virgin killed. Okay, just just killed outright. And this again is affirming how powerful the man's role is in this world of Scheherazade. And so um, actually he has each woman beheaded and each head is put on a spike and it's really gruesome and it's really disgusting. Okay, he goes through all the virgins in the kingdom fairly quickly. Um, and so uh, he turns to his vizier, which is his wise man, and he says, you know, who's next? And his vizier turns to him and says, there's nobody next. You've gone through all the virgins in, in the kingdom and you have the heads on the spikes to prove it. And he's like, certainly there must be someone. And so the vizier, because he had been, uh, he has had prior consultation on the idea, the vizier volunteers his daughter Scheherazade. Okay, he says, you may take my daughter Scheherazade, who is beautiful, and I can attest to you that she is a virgin. And so Sharar says, great. Now, the vizier wasn't just sacrificing his daughter Scheherazade because like we needed another piece of bologna to go in the sandwich, okay? Scheherazade had taken him aside and said, I want you to volunteer me. And he was like, I can't, you're my daughter and you're a precious, you're so precious to me. I'm not going to volunteer you for the, for the slaughter. And she's like, father, please volunteer me because I know how to take care of this. I'll be able to come up with a solution so that nobody else is ever killed again and no virgin need to fear for her wife, for, for her life. And so her father's like, okay, I trust you. Now, the reason that um, he trusts her 
um, to to you know then he he gives her hand in marriage to to uh, Sharar the monarch, is because as Sir Richard Burton says in his translation of the Thousand and One Nights, he describes uh, Sherazad as having perused the books annals and legends of preceding kings and the stories and examples. And she also studied and became well-versed in the instances of bygone men and things. Indeed, it was said that Scheherazade had collected thousands of books of histories relating to antique races and departed rulers. She had perused the works of the poets and knew them by heart. She had studied philosophy and the sciences, arts, and accomplishments. She was pleasant and polite, wise and witty, well-read and well-bred. Now, the important part here is that she had perused the works of the poets. She had studied philosophy and the sciences and the arts and accomplishments. So this is a well-studied philosophical woman who is now going to present herself to the monarch um, as the bride with the expectation that in the morning that she would, uh, that at night she would basically be, you know, raped and in the morning would be beheaded. So at night when it comes time for him to come into her chamber, you know, he's getting ready to do his thing. She says, you know, you just reminded me of a story. And it's like, hmm? And she's like, you just reminded me of a story and it's a story that I would love to tell you. And he's like, okay, sure, I'm game. She tells the first of a story of a thousand stories that are told over a succession of a thousand and one nights. And in these stories, you know, at first we think that they're fabulous tales and some of them are and they're mythological allegories and several others are that as well. But what also takes place during this period of time is the selection of, a, of the stories, the order in which they appear. And what she does is that she begins to reacquaint him with the history of his own people, with the culture of his own people. She instructs him in the arts of philosophy. She opens his mind through poetry and she revives in him the memory of what it is to be a good monarch. So it's not just that she's telling stories and delaying the inevitable. She is educating her monarch in what it is to be a true and a proper monarch. So that when we come to the end of the thousand uh, and one nights and he asks for another story because she always like leaves him with the cliffhanger and then picks up that story and then continues the next one the following night. He is just so enamored of her. He is just so taken up with her. He has just found his soulmate. He has found the person who has given him back his history, his inspiration, his culture, his morality, and has instructed him in wisdom. And I love this example of Scheherazade as coming with Mercury in Virgo, because it's not by pontificating, it's not by preaching, it's not by lecturing, but again, it's done through a story, 
it's done through a ruse, it's done through entering into a dangerous situation, a dilemma, and outsmarting and outmaneuvering, but not in a sort of Bugs Bunny way where he leaves, you know, um, Elmer Fudd, you know, flustered or whatever, but in a in 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 a educational way, in a calling to to wisdom sort of way, and these are things that I think are very much caught up in or bound up in Mercury and Virgo, and really serves to explain why Virgo is the sign of Mercury's exaltation. So when you think of Mercury and Virgo, either it's in your chart or you encounter it in life or, or can even use guidance from Mercury and Virgo uh, through the next few weeks to, to navigate sorts of situations, always think that it's the servant who knows more than the master. Always think that the best way to hide is through subservience and that what you want to do to get through or navigate through a situation is to win someone on your side without calling any attention to it. These are the gifts and talents of Mercury and Virgo. And Mercury will be in Virgo from August 11th to August 30th. Hi, I'm Rick Levine, and I'm so excited to be offering you the chance to study with me during our live chart reading practice month here at Astrology Hub. This course consists of four live sessions, each two hours long, where I'm going to be looking at a handful of students' charts live and demonstrating how to read a birth chart while actually receiving feedback from the designated clients in real time. This is Astrology in Action. This is where the rubber meets the road, and you'll be right there with me as I navigate the unique dynamics of these individuals' charts. The sessions will be streaming live every Thursday afternoon in August at 5 p.m. Pacific, that's 8 p.m. Eastern Time. And you can enroll now at astrologyhub.com charts. Oh, and by the way, you'll have the opportunity to submit your chart data for consideration to be one of those that will be read live during the sessions. Again, that's astrologyhub.com slash charts. I hope to see you there. <laughs>